So uh, what we're going to do is uh, take a look at Daniel uh, chapter uh, four tonight. So if you have a Bible, uh, that's where we will be for the next hour. And we're going to take a look at um, this very strange set of images that's found in the chapter. Uh, to kind of get into our time tonight, I just want to remind you that um, this book is about resistance in many respects. It's about uh, those individuals that do not have power resisting those in power. And we're going to see that a little bit more here in chapter four. So far, we've seen uh, the resistance in terms of refusal of food in chapter one, refusal to uh, be in fidelity with Nebuchadnezzar by bowing down to the statue in chapter three. And what we're going to see here tonight is an image that is going to portray a reversal of fortune on behalf of the king that is in power. So here's how this uh, chapter kind of unfolds. It begins and it ends, interestingly enough, with a confession by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, scholars call it a doxology. At the beginning, he's praising God. At the end, he's praising the God of Daniel as well. But in the middle, it gets interesting. Uh, he will have another dream, and that dream needs to be interpreted. Uh, however, this dream is fulfilled not over the course of the centuries to follow, as in the sequence of the different empires, but this is fulfilled within the uh, lifetime of the king himself. And so the uh, dream uh, interprets his uh, downfall, uh, as the writer of Proverbs tells us that pride goes before a fall. This literally happens in this chapter. And then he will go crazy in the process. And then after a period of time, he will be restored back to his position. So uh, that's kind of the uh, generic outline of the chapter. But what it's really talking about is this battle between the true throne of God and the false thrones of uh, emperors and kings that often uh, are resistant to the ways of God. So with that in mind, let's talk about this cosmic tree in chapter four and the crazy king that has the dream. So in chapter four, there are a couple of elements that are going on at the same time. Uh, there seems to be both uh, Babylonian, a little bit of Greek and Jewish sources that are being drawn upon to tell this story. And there's a reason for that. But uh, what we're going to see is Daniel is basically uh, taming the violent rage of the empire, not just the one king, but empires, plural, even as it extends down to the day of Antiochus Epiphanes. And so what we find taking place here is kind of a, a mash together of some stories that are found in other places, as well as the lineage of Jewish history and as it pertains to their own current situation. So I mentioned a moment ago that Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. Uh, and this dream 
is of a cosmic tree that covers the whole world. He doesn't know what it means, so he calls in his interpreters, his magicians and wise men, to interpret it. They can't do it. Um, this tree seems to represent, in ancient mythology, uh, kind of the fertility for the whole earth, as well as the adjoining cosmos. I'll show you some pictures in, in a moment that this idea of a cosmic tree makes its way into uh, the culture of many different peoples. In the dream, this uh, tree is cut down, and as a result, the king uh, becomes animal-like. So what happens here, though, is the Jewish element of this is there's the mention of a holy watcher that's governing the uh, activity of this king. And this holy watcher seems to be part of the angelic host that serves God. So different combinations of influences here in this chapter. We'll try to sort through it a little bit at a time. But uh, what we're going to see as we move down through the chapter is basically this. One of the things that scholars notice is it seems that this particular story of this king is actually the story of the last king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and that is a guy by the name of Nabonidus. And it seems as though this story about Nabonidus is projected back onto Nebuchadnezzar uh, and part of that um, that connection is the idea of these kings are going nuts over their own power and prestige. It drives them crazy. So Nabonidus is uh, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And he is an individual that takes over um, after Nebuchadnezzar dies. But what is interesting here is that in the history of his reign, he goes into self-exile for a while. And it's believed to be for about seven years. And in the meantime, next week in chapter five, we are going to be introduced to a King Belshazzar, and that's not um, Nebuchadnezzar's son. That's Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. It's the son of Nabonidus. And um, he is the one that is reigning in place of his father, Nabonidus, while his father is in self-exile. Now, the reason we know part of this history is because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is interesting. There is um, an Aramaic text uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls that was found in Cave 4 that talks about this episode in the life of Nabonidus. And part of the Dead Sea Scroll had the very prayer of Nabonidus that was part of the fragments in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So what scholars think is going on here is this is something that didn't happen to Nebuchadnezzar, but it was projected onto Nebuchadnezzar from a later time, but it represents what Nabonidus went through. So 
again, there's differences in the different traditions between uh, the Greek version and the Aramaic version of it and so forth. Um, this is where some of that other literature we've been talking about comes into play, where it supplements uh, these holes in the story. And that's where the Apocrypha comes in. We already talked a little bit about Bell and the Dragon last week, uh, supplementing uh, Daniel's activities and putting down the false gods. Now, having said all of that, we're going to take it as if it happened in Nebuchadnezzar. However, this is probably something that is a template that has been projected back by later editors onto Nebuchadnezzar as a way of showing how powerful emperors work. Does that make sense to everybody? Again, remember what I said last week that uh, in the case of history, in this book here in particular and in other places in the Bible, history is being used for the narrative, not narrative for the history. And uh, here's a case in point of that. Any thoughts or questions? So let's get into the text and you'll see some of the things that happen. So it begins with the doxology. Uh, interestingly enough, Nebuchadnezzar uh, is an individual that is reigning, and as he does so, he, at the end of chapter three, we saw that he elevated um, the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, because of the deliverance uh, out of the fiery furnace. So it begins as if things continued on. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that live throughout the earth, may you have abundant prosperity. The signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me, I am pleased to recount. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his sovereignty is from generation to generation. You should probably circle the word sovereignty uh, in this chapter, because that's what it's all about. Who is sovereign? Is it the kings of the Babylonians, or is it the God of the Jews? Now, what's key to this confession here, I think, is the issue of political authority is in submission by Nebuchadnezzar to God. And uh, you would almost uh, say he is a follower of the one true God of the Jewish people at this point. What happens, though, is he will have another dream and then make a crucial mistake. Now, the reason this idea of sovereignty or political power between God and the Babylonian emperors is so important is because later, as um, we have talked about in the second century BCE and Antiochus Epiphanes, there is the need for the exiles to have hope that God can do it again, that can bring this powerful ruler down to his knees. And that's what they're hoping for. That's what they're praying for. That's what they are rebelling against is um, the atrocities that Antiochus is bringing against 
the people. So two sovereignties are kind of in just a post, uh, post position here. The sovereignty of God, the creator of the universe, and the rulers of the Babylonians. Okay, any thoughts there? Okay, again, here's a map that kind of shows you how big the Babylonian Empire is. It's huge, and it is powerful. It's more powerful than uh, even Egypt, uh, that which was a powerful empire at one time. And at the current uh, time we're reading this, they are more powerful than the Medo-Persian Empire. Eventually, the Medes and the Persians will come in and win uh, some battles that will bring the Babylonians down. But again, at this point in time, what's being projected is the awesome power of the Babylonian Empire. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to have this dream. And he's going to call in his counselors. And we see this in verse 4 and following. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living at ease in my home and prospering in my palace. So things are going well for him. I saw a dream that frightened me. My fantasies in bed and the visions of my head terrified me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me in order that they might tell me the interpretation of the dream. So we've been through this script before uh, in chapter two, and then their name, the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, diviners come in, but they could not tell me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and who is endowed with the spirit of the holy gods, and I told him the dream. So where is Daniel at this point? We don't know. Why is he delayed in his arrival? I think it's for literary effect, probably, uh, to show again that here is Daniel riding in on a white horse, and he is going to be the one that is going to give wisdom to Nebuchadnezzar. So take a look at verse 8. It says, uh, at last Daniel came in before me. And then verse 9, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that you are endowed with the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Hear the dream that I saw and tell me its interpretation. Upon my bed, this is what I saw. There was a tree at the center of the earth and its height was great. The, true, the tree grew great and strong. Its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and it provided food for all. The animals of the field found shade <clears throat> under it. The birds of the air nested in its branches, and from it all living beings were fed. I continued looking in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and there was a holy watcher coming down from heaven. So then there's going to be uh, this, this angel that is going to uh, give another vision of the tree being cut down. But let's stop here for a second and take a look at what his dream is. So this idea of a cosmic tree that gives life to the rest of existence 
uh, is very common. Um, what we find is that it repeats itself several times in ancient literature. But a good example of it, even within the scripture itself, is in Ezekiel chapter 31. So I want you to keep your uh, thumb here in Daniel 4. And I want you to go over to Ezekiel chapter 31 for a moment. So now this is not going to be the downfall of Babylon, but this is the prediction of the downfall of Egypt. And it's the same imagery uh, that's being communicated here. And this time it's speaking of Pharaoh rather than Nebuchadnezzar. So take a look at verse 1, Ezekiel 31. It says, in the 11th year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to his hordes. So this is the message that is being given to the most powerful man at this point in time, who is over the most powerful empire at this point in time, in the mind of Ezekiel. It says here, who are you like in your greatness? Oh, notice the imagery. Think of Assyria, a cedar in Lebanon, with its beautiful branches and shady foliage and of lofty height. Its top was among the clouds. Do you see the same thing there? Huge cosmic tree is what is this colossal tree. Well, it says the waters caused it to grow. The underground springs made it tall, directing their rivers all around the place where the tree was planted and sending their channels to all the trees of the field. There it is. It's providing for the rest of creation. Therefore, the cedar became greater in height than all the trees of the field. Its branches multiplied, its boughs grew long, and it spread them out because of the abundant water. And then the same image here. All the birds of the sky nested in its branches. All the animals of the field gave birth beneath its boughs, and all the great nations lived in its shade. So here's this same image. Cosmic tree that has the potential to feed and provide for the rest of the world. Others are under the shade of this tree. And verse seven says, it was beautiful in its size, in the length of its limbs for its roots extended to abundant water. The cedars in God's garden could not eclipse it. The pine trees couldn't compare with its branches, nor could the plane trees match its boughs. No tree in the garden of God could compare with it in beauty. I made it beautiful with its many limbs, and all the trees of Eden, which were in God's garden, envied it. So nothing to compare with it. Then all of a sudden, Ezekiel's text turns. Verse 10, therefore, this is what the Lord God says, since it towered high in stature and set its top among the clouds and it grew proud, there it is, the word that's applicable back in Daniel 4, proud on account of its height, I determined to hand it over to the rulers of nations. He would surely deal with it. I banished it because of its wickedness. Foreigners, ruthless men from the nations, cut it down and left it lying. Its limbs fell on the mountains and in every valley, its bows lay broken and all the earth's ravine. 
So what is uh, this suggesting? It's saying that there comes a point sometimes within empires where powerful people grow so powerful, they become so proud, they become so arrogant that they refuse to continue to do what only they can do, supply the resources, excuse me, supply the resources that's needed for the rest of the world and choose rather to serve only themselves. And God says, okay, that's it. I'm going to bring you down. And at the end of the chapter in verse 18, this is how it finishes. Who then are you like in glory and greatness among Eden's trees? You also will be brought down to the underworld to be with the trees of Eden, and you will lie among the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his hordes, and this is the declaration of the Lord God. Pretty powerful imagery to talk about how God holds people in power and in position responsible for not just their own glory, but for the provisions that are necessary to make uh, to make existence work. So between these two chapters, Daniel 4, Ezekiel 31, and other related materials, what we find is that there are times where empires are allowed to grow, they're allowed to flourish, but then God brings them down because they refuse to use their resources and prosperity on behalf of humanity. Does that make sense? Thoughts? Okay, so take a look at some of these pictures here. So this is the idea of the cosmic tree in ancient mythology. So you're going to notice here, there's representations of different types of trees, and they come from different traditions. Uh, it, it's very prominent in Native American uh, imagery, in Indo-European imagery, and in Siberian imagery. What, what you find here is in these pictures, the tree somehow, and I think it probably goes all the way back to the garden, the, the tree somehow represents uh, the potential of mankind. And if you go back to the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is part of that imagery as well. But as the different subcultures uh, take on this image of the tree, its branches, and its roots uh, stretching down, it also takes on some of the mythology. So take a look here. Here's one from Native Americans, okay? So this tree of life or cosmic tree is uh, on the back of a turtle, okay? Here uh, below, you see the cosmic tree is holding the earth together, but its potential reaches to all the universe. There you have the sun and the moon in this particular image as well. Um, you have uh, different things that go back to ancient cosmology that somehow humanity lives within a globe or a circumference. Uh, some of that imagery comes through in the Bible as well. 
And of course, the idea of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, has this idea attached to it as well. So this idea, this image of this cosmic tree is something that has, um, has power in ancient cultures. And it is something that seems to be communicated from generation to generation. But at times, it can get messed up. And as it does, sometimes other gods are attached to this image as well. You see that in 2 Kings chapter 17. In 2 Kings chapter 17, <clears throat> there is this sacred tree that's called an Asherah pole. Have you heard of that before in the Old Testament, the Asherah pole? And it's actually connected to the idea of fertility. Um, women often held a statue of Asherah when giving birth to a child. It was a much bigger image than that, though, as well. Here is a picture of an Asherah pole. This, this is an actual artifact that is found over in Israel uh, at the Tel Rehov exhibit, which is at Eretz Israel Museum. This Asherah pole has some different elements. It's very interesting. So down here is a gate representing a kingdom and entrance into that gate. Up on top is considered an altar where sacrifices are given to the gods. But notice what's right in the middle of it. Do you see it there? A tree. Okay. A cosmic tree. So <clears throat> all of these traditions seem to have stretched beyond um, just localized cultures. It's interesting that this imagery goes all the way into Native American uh, subculture and as well as the ancient Near East as well. So <clears throat> before we come back and, and look at what happens to the tree in Daniel 4, do you have some comments or questions? Um, this is a very prominent image that's being used. Any thoughts? Yeah, it's not as far-fetched as you might think. Trees... Uh Trees have an underground networking system, mm. yeah. even, even trees of different species. They communicate through their root structures with, and I'm going to blow the pronunciation of this, my, micro-hizzle network, mm -hmm. and they can send each other water and nutrients. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it seems ancient people knew a lot of this type of interconnectedness uh, between nature and mankind. And um, even today, we say that uh, the rainforest is the lungs of the earth. So if we cut, cut down too many of those trees, it's going to uh, produce adverse effects. So the tree imagery is something that... Um, was picked up on very early in the history of human civilization. And uh, the more we learn of it, just like you were talking about there, Shelley, with the interconnectedness and life-giving elements of it, is just, it's mind-blowing. Uh, it really is. It's 
Yeah, thanks for that. That's great. She's watched the movie Avatar too many times. No, bud. This is a, this is real. I look it up on my research-based information. <laughs> I'm not getting in between a, a couple of uh, arguments. <laughs> oh, I love it. You can also see it in um, the Narnia series. What is that? Explain what that the, is. The trees interconnected okay. and feeling for each other. Oh. It's, um, there again, I want to say it's in the last battle. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting. Hmm. Very good. So anyways, you get a feel for this. This idea of a tree, here's my point, basically. Um, didn't drop in out of nowhere into Daniel 4. The dream that Nebuchadnezzar has is part of something much bigger than him. It's part of something that relates uh, to the cultures of its day, their understanding of how life works, that type of thing. So let's come back to Daniel. So in Daniel chapter 4, in verse 13... It says, I continued looking. So Nebuchadnezzar is still describing the dream. And in the visions in my head, as I lay in bed, there was a holy watcher coming down from heaven, a holy watcher, the arrival of this uh, angelic being. Now, who is this? Well, from what we can tell, these uh, messengers, these watchers come from God's court and they serve almost as God's informant. They're the individuals that spy out what's happening on earth and give report back to God. Now, for the exiles and these immigrants that are uh, in Babylon at the time, this image would be quite powerful. Um, the fear of betrayal is going hard in the in the souls of these individuals who feel that they have been deserted by God. And to think that God's watchmen are still watching over them and hearing their prayers, um, that goes all the way back to Exodus, too, when God hears the prayers of the people who are in slavery in Egypt, and then he brings Moses to be the deliverer of the people out of that um, disaster. Um, so what does this watcher do? This watcher is going to um, pronounce judgment on this tree, which in this particular chapter, it's Nebuchadnezzar. And here's what it says, verse 14. He cried out and said, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from beneath it and the birds from its branches. Believe its stump and roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let him be bathed with the dew of heaven and let his be his lot be with the animals of the field in the grass of the earth let his mind be changed from that of a human 
and let the mind of an animal be given to him, and let seven times pass over him. The sentence is rendered by decree of the watchers. The decision is given by order of the holy ones, in order that all who live may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of mortals. He gives it to whom he will, and he sets it uh, he, he sets over it the lowest of human beings. So the angelic watcher says, um, you're going to be cut down and you're going to experience life from a different point of view. You're going to be removed from your palace. You're going to be removed from your privilege. You're going to be removed from your power and you're going to be like an animal. And all of this is suggesting that those that are in power, there is always the potential of God saying at some point, enough's enough, enough's enough, and I'm going to bring you down. And that's what Ezekiel 31 was talking about. That's what Daniel 4 is talking about. But what's interesting here is the projection of him going crazy. Um, is not fully explained until later in the chapter here, but it is suggested that his own mental state of being uh, puffed up and privileged and taking advantage of other people is, is going to lead to a point where he loses it. And as he loses it, he will experience life from a perspective he has never experienced before. So in this case, the ruler is going to be humbled. And what is the main point here? The main point is he will come to a realization that God is the one who is so sovereign over the kingdom of mortals, as it says in verse 17 here. Uh, and he'll come to his senses. And as he comes to his senses, uh, his, his sanity will be restored. At this point, he doesn't know what this means. He's seen it in a dream, and now he needs Daniel. And that's where Daniel steps in. Daniel is going to step in here and interpret the dream. Now, this again is a risky move for Daniel to be truthful to the king because it doesn't look good by the way he um, interprets it. Verse 19. Then Daniel, who is called Belteshazzar, was severely distressed for a while. His thoughts terrified him. The king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or the interpretation terrify you. Well, why is Daniel afraid? Well, he's cognizant of what could happen. I mean, actually, it will happen in chapter six. The king will get so enraged and uh, make a decree that could put his life in jeopardy. He's speaking truth against power here, and he realizes that it could have some implications. It goes on. Belteshazzar answered, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. O Nebuchadnezzar, I pray that this is true about these other uh, kings of other empires. I don't pray that this is what's going to happen to you. Then he gives the interpretation. 
the tree that you saw, which grew great and strong so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and was provided food and which provided food for all under which animals of the fields lived and in whose branches the birds of the air had nests. It's you, O king. You have grown great and strong. Your greatness has increased and reaches to heaven and your sovereignty to the ends of the earth. And whereas the king saw a holy watcher coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze in the grass of the field, and let him be bathed with the dew of heaven, and let his lot be with the animals of the field until seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and it is the decree of the Most High that has come upon my Lord the king. You shall be driven away from human society, and your dwelling shall be with the wild animals." You shall be made to eat grass like oxen, and you shall be bathed with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you until you have learned, here we go, that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals. There it is again. And it gives to whom he will. As it, it was commanded to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be established for you from the time that you learn that heaven is sovereign. Do you see how many times the word sovereign keeps pop, popping up? Therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you. Uh, atone for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed so that your prosperity may be prolonged. So Daniel holds out this hope. If you'll just come to your senses, and realize God has put you in this position. He's the sovereign one. And if you will meet the needs like the cosmic tree for those that are underneath you, those that need you, well, maybe God will relent and not allow this to take place in your life. So the tree uh, is the king. And he has uh, many different subjects in his empire. But Ultimately, it is God who gives him the ability to reign over the earth as he does. Now, that brings up an ethical question that we, the, the text never addresses, and that is the idea of bloodshed and murder and all the, the things that took place to, uh, to have this type of empire. At this point, the perspective is really from the point of the exile's that are hoping that Nebuchadnezzar will stay true to the repentance and and uh, epiphany that he had uh, at the end of chapter three that is found at the beginning of chapter four, and that will be returned to when he praises God at the end of chapter four. So here's this uncrossable distance, as I put on the slide here, between gods and humans. Humans can become powerful. And they can become tyrannical, but they do not have the power of God. And God has the uh, the potential of bringing them down as he sees fit. Now here, he's going to do this in a most strange way, because the dream is going to be fulfilled after Nebuchadnezzar does not 
stay humble. So I we know we know that a whole year goes by after he is told the interpretation of this dream. There's a whole year that goes by. But look at verse 28. Now, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king said, is this not magnificent Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? So here he goes. The pride uh, uh, comes upon him. And as he sees himself at the peak of his power, he will find that he really is kind of a plaything in the hands of the destiny of that dream that was already given to him. Now, I love the way this says in verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth. <laughs> in other words, he hadn't even stopped speaking yet. A voice came from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven away from human society, and your dwelling shall be with the animals of the field, and you shall be made to eat uh, grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals, and give it to whom he will. And immediately the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from human society, ate grass like oxen, and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until his hair grew long as eagle's feathers and his nails as bird's claws. And this is probably what he might have looked like, or at least that's what um, uh, artists render him to look like, acting like an animal. And remember I said, as we think about this dream being fulfilled, this probably is something that is talking about Nabonidus, because what we do know from the prayer of Nabonidus and other material, that Nabonidus really was in exile from, from his rule over Babylon for a period of seven years. And then he returns back, um, only to find that the kingdom is going to fall to the Medo-Persian Empire. Now that's attributed, though, to uh, Belshazzar in chapter five, which I said earlier is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So it seems what the text is doing is taking a later situation, imposing it back onto the reign of Nebuchadnezzar as a way of identifying God being in control from the time they went into exile into Babylon and as they sit in exile uh, to um, Antiochus Epiphanes and are being subjected to Hellenization, uh, there is this hope that God will bring this man down that is bringing such havoc to the Jewish race. So um, what's happening, I think, here is kind of a classic Hebraic sense of a reversal of fortune. Um, what goes around comes around. Uh, so, you know, we have different ways of saying that eventually 
it catches up with you. And as it catches up with you, then uh, you will experience the consequences of your pride and your uh, arrogance and that type of thing. So we're giving, we're being given really in many respects, a, a template here. And Daniel is trying to tell us that when powerful people become too powerful, God has ways of humbling them. Now, again, this is not really giving us a full explanation of why evil prospers, but this is the hope of the Jewish people, is, is that God is going to bring the current emperor down that uh, is causing them their harm and uh, and hurt. Any thoughts there? So he was like this for seven years? That is correct. Yeah. Okay. And that might be a, a little notation to make in your mind here, too, because later we're going to be introduced to the number seven, seven times uh, uh, seven uh, and uh, seven uh, times 70 uh, will come into play later in the book of Daniel. That's where interpreters come up with this idea of 490 years until the time of the coming of the Messiah. We'll get to that later in, in later chapters of Daniel. But the number seven plays an important role here. And I think here, until seven times pass over you in verse 25, seems as though it's talking about seven years, um, the seven times. So thoughts there? Okay, so let's first, uh, before I get to this, um, take a look at just uh, how the chapter ends. So verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar um, is, is viewed as allow uh, his reasoning comes back to him his sanity returns to him and he gives a second uh doxology it, it occurred at the beginning of the chapter and it occurs here at the end look at verse 34 when that period was over i nebuchadnezzar now notice the first person here it be uh, the chapter began in the first person it ends in the first person when that period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored the one who lives forever. For his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty. There it is again. Sovereignty is the key word that's in this chapter. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does what he wills with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and my lords sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are truth, his ways are justice, 
and he is able to bring low those who walk in pride. So it is there we see how he humbles himself, he repents, and he is restored. So in this um, New Interpreter's uh, Study Bible, here's what it says uh, down uh, as a footnote for that paragraph. It says, the story ends as it began with a doxology. Nebuchadnezzar is restored to his former position, possibly a reflection of Nabonidus's return to Babylon. In other words, this seems to be something that historically happened to Nebuchadnezzar's son, but the author is suggesting that it is something that happened to Nebuchadnezzar as a way of showing that all uh, all emperors are subject to the great uh, God who is sovereign. So that, I think, brings us to this um, way of thinking about empire. This chapter is a way of personifying the insanity of power, injustice, evil, all of those type of things. I think it also suggests a little bit about, about why empires are prone to a lot of anxiety, that there's always someone wanting to knock them off the pedestal. And there is fear of losing power, and losing power means losing profit and, uh, and position as well. So when we look at chapter four, we take it as a story about Nebuchadnezzar, but the author is trying to get us to see that this applies to all people in powerful positions that really do not give um, much care for those that are under their power. And um, the cosmic tree then is the roots are to extend and provide life. The branches are to provide shade or protection. Um, this probably is a way of very subtly and very uh, symbolically a uh, way of saying, you know what? Antiochus IV, also called Epiphanes, that the Hebrews called Epiphany, Epimenes, which means madman. Epiphanes means great. Epimenes means madman. So it's a close uh, word association. This is kind of a way of talking about hang in there. Hang in there, this evil man, Antiochus. Uh, the evil one is going to come down. And eventually he does. Rome will come in and conquer Greece, um, but it won't happen necessarily within the lifetime of those that chose to rebel in the Maccabean revolution. So um, one other thing here is, uh, I had that slide out of sequence. I should have come before that other slide. Um, anyways, uh, you will find that the prophets, as well as the book of Proverbs, talks about uh, how pride often leads to a downfall. So you have some cross-references there. One last slide. So maybe what this chapter is bringing up 
is the idea that God allows rulers on earth uh, by his delegated authority. But when you do not live out um, the type of, of leadership and, excuse me, reign uh, as God would want to rule on earth, God can then take that away. So this becomes, I think, a a chapter um, to give hope that even when the most hmm, evil, the most arrogant, the most wicked type people are in power, it doesn't mean they are in full control. What it does mean, though, is sometimes you have to keep persevering and doing your part uh, in wanting to change that regime that will better reflect uh, the way God rules from heaven. So God reigns. Um, those that are beneath him uh, are his servants. Paul will say this in the book of Romans as well. But um, the power of empire should never um, be baptized through the use of religion. And I think that um, this chapter especially is showing us that Nebuchadnezzar is sobered by his situation because he became too arrogant and too uh, proud. So chapter four is really a story told to mock and deride the powerful because they think nothing can bring them down. And it's also a story of hope. The king uh, in this story, chapter four, is actually rehabilitated. He comes back to his senses. And I guess that's really what we often have to pray for, is that our leadership in our nation will come back to their senses and uh, not use and abuse people uh, for their own advantage. So uh, that's what I have for you tonight. Uh, do you have some thoughts, some questions, some um, uh, clarifications, anything? Interesting chapter. And uh, I think it's uh, that image of the cosmic tree. If you want to do an internet search, you're going to find all kinds of connections to that, to all kinds of different types of people and civilizations. Um, and I just find that fascinating that it has carried over from ancient uh, Near East into other parts of the world and continues to be something that uh, is used even in the thought processes of different uh, religions around the world. So any other thoughts tonight? Well, we made it through without the power going out on us because it is still raining like crazy up here in Northeast Ohio. So, yep. yeah. So I'm happy for that. So, all right. Well, chapter five next mm -hmm. week, and that's the famous chapter of the handwriting on the wall. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we'll take a look at that next week. Okay. Did you ever watch the... Um... Anna Barbera Bible series. They have one on Daniel. No. Unfortunately. Oh, yeah.
It's VCR tapes. Oh no, I you know, I'm not familiar with it, huh? Yeah, my yeah. kids love the and the one on Daniel. Yeah, I keep flashing back to that. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Lauren Green narrated it. Oh, did he? Oh wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. He did other things besides Bonanza? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You guys have a good uh, evening, and we'll see you. Talk to you soon, you okay? Too. Take right. care. Bye. 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 Bye.